0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Welcome. It's good to have you with us. We are getting towards the end of a study that we've been involved in for quite a while, which is on the book of Nehemiah. We'll have it done before Easter, we'll celebrate Easter, and then after that we're going to uh, go into the book of Colossians, which is a book in the New Testament. So we just teach through sections of scripture, and today we're in Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, under the seat in front of you, there is one. You can grab that, take that Bible out, and turn to page 231. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, you'll be able to see it there. It'll be in chapter 12, and you just go down to where the verse uh, says a small number, 27, and we'll read the, the 20 verses that, uh, that follow that together. And rather than give some background, I'm just going to jump right in, and then as we go, I'll offer some uh, background that I hope will uh, clarify <clears throat> where we are in, uh, in this story. So let's listen, verse 27, this is God's word. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shimeah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shimeah, son of Madaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shimeah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilali, Maai, uh, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani. But the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. At the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above, the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yashanah and by the, gate, by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, the priest Eliakim, Messiah, Miniam, uh, Micaiah, Eliani, Zechariah, and Hanani with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoannan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezar. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and all in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. And we believe you have something for us today in this text, and we simply ask that you would enable us to bridge the gap of history and geography and culture to a time long ago that we might see you in this passage, that we might see your heart for us in this passage, that we ultimately might see the Lord Jesus Christ reflected through the truth of this passage as well. So Lord, speak to us, give us ears to hear, and show us your faithful character today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most basic sort of steps of biblical interpretation is to look for repetition in a passage. So if we call out all these sort of cumbersome names, uh, without question, the best is Millilai and Gililai. If you have twins, consider those names. That's beautiful. Milali and Let's love that. Uh, but if we call out these foreign names um, and just begin to look at what the text itself says, what we see is a repetition of the kind of words that, that have to do with joy that have to do with celebration. So it begins in verse 27, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. So they're dedicating the walls. Celebrate dedication with gladness, thanksgiving, and singing. And then it goes on to list instruments, cymbals, harps, lyres. So there is this sense of dedication. It's a, it's a ceremony to delica- dedicate what God has done build, through them, building these walls. And theres it's a time of celebration. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of gladness, the text says. Um, we see down in verse 31 that Nehemiah brings the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appoints two great choirs to give thanks. So he's got these singers that are going to To all together give thanks. Again, it's a celebration um, sort of environment. Verse 43 really encapsulates kind of the vibe of the whole section. And that's when it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. This is not just rejoicing, but this is rejoicing with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, which is just a picture of everybody present, are all rejoicing. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So after the dedication, there's this tremendous celebration and joy. And after it, we even see in verse uh, 44, uh, down below it, they they began to... sort of make provision for this joy to continue. And so they make sure that they have Levites and priests in the temple, that people are bringing gifts to sustain them so they can continue their ministry. And it says in verse 44 that Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered. So there's rejoicing over God's provision of leaders as well, rejoicing over the wall, rejoicing over all of God's people, what he has done, and rejoicing over their leaders. So why is there such a great occasion and sort of fanfare with these choirs and this Celebration and all that 's going on, well, if we look back to the beginning of the book, we really see how drastically different this is, and we begin to get an idea why there is such celebration. The book begins on a totally different note. it begins in a minor key with Nehemiah uh, with his people the uh, people of Judah, with his people in a foreign land he is uh, they 're in exile uh, they 've been in exile for some time, and he is serving. Uh, under the king of Persia, and he gets a report that things in Jerusalem are not good. In verse 3 of chapter 1, his brother giving the report says to him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So he hears this report, and consider how different this is. Look at the words that we see in this passage. They are uh, great trouble. People are in trouble. Shame. There's a shame over the people. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates destroyed by fire. Listen to what different language: shame, trouble, destruction, broken down. And look at his emotional response to that. Verse four: As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. He's in grief for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he's he's mourning, he's fasting. He's grieving because the people are shamed. The the city is in rubble. It's broken down. What a drastic difference between chapter 12. In chapter 12, it's celebrate, choir, sing, trumpets, harps, um, great joy, rejoicing, thanksgiving. All of those are the words of that text. So what happens between chapter 1 where there is this profound grief, and sense of despair and chapter 12 where they are literally dancing on the walls of the city what happens well what happens between chapter 1 and chapter 12 is the story of God's faithfulness to his people they had they had been in exile at, by the time we get to chapter 12 they'd been in exile for uh they'd been taken to exile 150 years ago so the walls of the city have been in disrepair for 150 years. And now God has raised up Nehemiah in chapter 1. He goes to the king who provides the finances for the rebuilding of the project. He sends Nehemiah with protection. He provides wood for the project. Uh, he protects him. Nehemiah comes back to the people, and the people rally around and say, Let's build a wall around our city so we can live in the city. We'll be protected. Uh, The people gather together and they all work Phenomenally, On the wall together in unity There is persecution There is jeering There are threats of harm And the people work together Even under those threats um, There is disparity among the people And there's repentance Nehemiah finds out that the rich Are taking advantage of the poor That there is an oppression of the poor And the vulnerable And they get that all right So his people, they repent And get that all right So they come together in unity uh, the people finish the project of the wall, and we find out in many ways the building of the wall around the city is just a metaphor. Uh, it's, it actually happens, it's not just a metaphor. But in the story, it really serves as a metaphor of what God is doing. He's not just building a wall, He's building the people. He's not just restoring the wall from rubble to completion but he is restoring and renewing and reviving a people and so they come and they they hear God's word they hear the scripture they turn from their sins and they repent to God they turn to God they humble themselves um, they celebrate a feast from the old testament called the feast of booths so they are really moving towards the Lord as a people in unity Uh, then they say okay we have to inhabit the city so who's willing to go they're all willing to move into the city they draw lots one out of every 10 people moves back into the city and now they dedicate these walls that had been in shambles this is what we have to see these walls have been in shambles for a century and a half this isn't just a minor building project this isn't just an open house and grand opening because, look, at we've, we've sort of redone, under new management or something, redone the wall. No, this is, this is an enormous celebration because it has been a century and a half. The longer you languish defeated, the sweeter is victory when it comes. The longer you languish in defeat, the sweeter is victory, and it's been 150 years. Think about the Chicago Cubs. When they finally won a World Series in 2016, it was the longest drought of any sports team uh, in our history. So from any time a team had been founded until their winning of a championship, 108 years. Not 150 years, but 108 years. And so if you watch that and got caught up in that, you realize that even people who didn't care for the Cubs just just uh, jumped on the bandwagon and sort of celebrated because these poor people had been conspired to generations Uh, of failure. I mean, per se, just year after year after year. And so finally they won, and this celebration was not only confined to Chicago and the loyal fans who had waited for so long, but it was really spread throughout the country where everybody was able to say, man, they sort of, after this... Yeah, they sort, of, they sort of deserved some kind of a break for a sports town like that. And so if you can imagine that, how much more for this God's people. It had seemed hopeless for them. Uh, it had seemed impossible for them. They had been taken in exile, their city destroyed under the judgment of God. And this isn't God just bringing it all together. This is a statement of God's faithfulness. God fulfills his promises. And that's what they're celebrating, that God said he would have a people. He promised Abraham, you will, I will build a people from you. I will give them a land, and I will bless the nations through them. And so they are, they are the people of God who are gathered together, and they, are accompli- they have accomplished something great by God's grace, and they are celebrating with gratitude and with joy. So the great joy in the passage is the result of God fulfilling his promises, that he's not left them. But that he's faithful. And you know, that truth is relevant for you and me today. That truth really resonates with us that joy comes when we recognize God's faithfulness, when we can see God at work and remaining faithful to us as a church, as a people. Or as an individual, it brings joy to the soul. Joy is seen, as here in this passage, with recognizing God's faithfulness in our lives. Now let's look at the story, and then I want to come back to that point and make some application for us. Uh, The story starts out. In verse 27, and we see they're dedicating this wall, which they've built. It surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And they go out and they seek the Levites. Levites are those who helped in temple worship. So they bring the Levites in and to celebrate with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing. It says, verse 27, uh, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. So they're going to they have musical accompaniment. And then they go out and get the sons of the singers. So they had singers that were... Um, Involved in, in leading worship in the temple, and now they're going to go get their sons. The next generation's participating. Again, God faithful from generation to generation. So now we have the next generation coming. They're gathering together. They go. The singers are in. Um, they're surrounding Jerusalem in villages. It says in verse twenty nine that the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. So this is kind of interesting. That all the singers lived in these little artist enclaves around this, like the worship arts district. They just all the worship singers lived together, and uh, in these areas. So they go to those areas and say, "Hey, come on! It's time to uh, dedicate uh, the walls of the city. We need you with us to help lead in the singing." So they gather, uh, and then they purify themselves. Verse thirty: the priests and the Levites purify themselves. Purified the people and the gates and the wall. We don't know exactly what this purification ceremony looked like. It probably involved some kind of washing, ceremonial washing, um, which is representative of of, of a pure heart, um, that we have to have clean hands and a pure heart when we come before God in worship. And uh, we come before God as Christians in Christ, in his righteousness. Uh, but they they, they wash to represent this purifying of themselves and and the walls and the gates as well what is that saying well it 's saying they they probably just maybe i don 't know how they did this, how they purified them, but perhaps they just sort of sprinkled water, at points on the wall or the gates or something like that. It's just saying this wall that God has built, this is set apart. It's material, it's not people, but it's set apart for God's purposes. This is something special uh, for God's purposes. So they were uh, celebrating uh, what God had done. And then they do something that is really amazing. Verse 31, I brought the leaders of Judah Up onto the wall, so you could, there were stairs that would lead up to the top of the wall. I brought them up to the wall, and I appointed two great choirs to give thanks. Now, it's easy to get lost in the woods of this. Like, where are they going, and who's with them, and what's the names, and the there's a lot of names here. But basically, here's, here's the simplified version of what happens. He gets two choirs together and puts them at different points of the wall. So one group uh, is with Ezra, the scribe. We've read about Ezra if you've been tracking with us. We've read about Ezra. So Ezra takes a group at the south wall, and they sort of process with these singers, with these priests, with these leaders, with all these instruments. They sort of process up to the east. And then there's another group that starts in the north, And they sort of process down to the west. And so both of these groups of people are singing and celebrating together. And ultimately, they all meet. Verse 40 says, uh, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. So one goes this way, one goes this way, and they kind of meet at the temple. They meet at the temple uh, where they uh, offer sacrifices and celebrate uh, what God is doing. And it's, it's fascinating that we get a description of their instruments. <clears throat> verse 35, excuse me. Uh, verse 35 tells us that the priest's sons, so we have the singer's sons singing, the priest's sons brought trumpets. So every event is more exciting with trumpets, no doubt. So they've got trumpets. And then we get this fascinating in verse 36 that they came with the musical, verse 36, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. I think this is so important because when he says the instruments of David, this isn't just like a random reference. The point he's making that Nehemiah, God's making to us through Nehemiah, is that they are rooted in a history. This isn't just an event like, look what we have done. We've done something new and better. This isn't your mom's city walls and this isn't your dad's temple. We're the new generation doing our thing in our generation, rising up in our generation, doing a new thing, detached and separated from everything God's ever done before. Uh, more than one generation has viewed itself that way. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, no, God's faithfulness is generation to generation. So we're walking around these, on these walls, not around. We're walking on these walls singing. And we've got representative of us the old school instruments from David's time. The old school instruments We're playing those, and this is really emphasized, if you look down in verse 45, after we see they establish regular giving among the people so that what they're trying to do is maintain (coughs) the worship they experienced at the dedication, it says that, uh, verse 46, years ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving. Okay, so they're saying, look, we're doing now what's always been done. We have a rooted history in our past, and when we remember that, what do we remember? God is faithful. God was faithful to David and the generation after him and the generation after him and the generation. God is working generation to generation, and we want to be a people who values the history of the church. Well, the history of God's people going all the way back to Abraham, but but the value the history of God's people in particular in the church, that God is faithful to us. That's why when we gather on Sundays and we sing, we often, uh, most every Sunday, we're going to sing some kind of hymn. We're going to make sure we're singing something that wasn't written in the last one to five years. But something with a shelf life. Nothing wrong with reading, singing something that's very current. Nothing wrong with that if it's, if it's if the lyrics are biblically faithful and true. But we want to say, hey, you know what? We want to sing things also that the church has sung for 100 years and 200 years and 300 years and 400 years. And that's why we will at times uh, recite creeds or confessions, rather, together as well. Last week we did the Nicene Creed. Um, and we read a confession. Why? Because that's something that people, the church historically has said, this is a summary of the biblical understanding of who God the Father is and who Jesus the Son is and who the Holy Spirit is, as in the Apostles' Creed as well, what the church is. So the church, generations of Christians since the early, you know, for 1,700 years or whatever it is, I didn't do the math in my head, but uh, have been reciting this. So we're not just the church of what's happening today. But we're rooted in a history. Why? Because that reflects the faithfulness of God. That reflects that God, he's building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And it's being expressed in differing ways among... Uh, Younger people and older people in different languages and different cultures and different people groups all over the planet Which express worship and express discipleship in a way appropriate to their date and their time Communicate the gospel in a way that's relevant in their context and in their culture So there is expression of the gospel and of our worship that is contemporary and relevant to the people wherever the gospel goes But the message is enduring The message of the Bible does not change. And so they are saying, look, we got the same instruments. Let's remember what God did through David and through his son Solomon who built the first temple. Uh, So they're celebrating that history. And what a celebration this is. What a celebration. They are walking on the walls. They're wide enough that they can get a bunch of people up there. One author I read said, you know, if you want to kind of get a visual picture of what's happening... Think about the largest choir you've ever seen. So think about, you know, usually a choir, if you're in a church and you hear a choir, it's usually a choir loft. Think about the biggest filled choir loft you've ever observed. And then take that choir and combine them with a marching band, with loud music and cymbals. We got trumpets. This band has strings as well. Because it has a harps. It says it had harps. Which is probably not the big thing we think of. It's probably a name for a smaller stringed instrument. But they had stringed instruments. They had lyres. Which are not dishonest people. But a stringed instrument as well. So they had them marching alongside as well. And it's like a massive. It's, when I think of large choirs and marching band. Coming down the wall. Singing and celebrating. I think of like a Parade. That's probably what we should think of—a parade. Parade. Everybody likes a parade. There's something joyful about a parade. I was in a parade one time, second grade. The Cub Scouts marched. I didn't even—I didn't even know the event, but the Cub Scouts. We were in a parade in Tomball, Texas, and so that was amazing. I'll be in the lobby signing autographs at the end of the service. But amazing. So, have you ever been in a parade? It's a big, big deal. And so these people are watching this joyful parade. It it says that God made, verse 43, God made them rejoice, all the people. Now it doesn't mean like made them in the sense of like a parent saying, you will eat everything on your plate, young man, and you will enjoy it. Well, it's not like making them enjoy it. That's a great command, but that just ain't happening. You can't make someone enjoy something. God's not forcing them. What it's saying is God did something so amazing for them that they were compelled to joy, that God's faithfulness was on display with such glory and power. They were compelled. They were driven. They were irresistibly joyful. God made them to be joyful Yeah, they rejoice with great joy. How wonderful would that be? The men and the women and the children. Presumably, those who aren't in the worship parade uh, are down in the city and just like looking up on the walls. And there's this big group of people you could see, you know, at a distance down there and right here. You could just see them Uh, Processing in parade-like fashion Celebrating And the people on the ground watching this The kids are bouncing up and down Excited They've never seen anything like this They've never seen Because it's been 150 years since there were walls Women and the children and the men and uh, Just exciting time And then the sound is so uh, loud That it says that the joy of uh, Jerusalem Was heard far away so those outside the city could hear these goings on where you could hear something at a distance you know maybe they don't even know what's going on but they could hear the sound of joy i live in this area walking distance to this building and i can actually hear um, on my porch, I can actually hear things that happen over in Toyota Stadium at times. I can hear loud cheers. I can hear kind of like a roar. Usually I hear music when they have concerts and stuff. I can hear all the way there. Man, somebody's having some kind of fun. There's some kind of event going on over there. But you can hear it at a distance. I'm aware something's happening. That's what's happening here. Something's happening. Not in the stadium, but in the city of God. You know, I thought about this passage, they're walk, verse 31, walking on the walls. And I wondered if anyone up there is thinking about the persecution and the opposition. Not in like a self-righteous, smug sort of a way, but just looking back on the opposition that they experienced. I thought particularly as they walk on the walls, I thought about Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4, uh, they're getting a lot of grief for starting the project. Verse 1, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, so he's mocking them in front of, a, in front of an army, so there's a, certainly a threat there, no doubt. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? I wonder if anybody felt feeble in chapter 12 on the day of dedication. What are they doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? This is a pile of burned stones. 150 years ago, this wall was burned, the city was burned. Are they going to revive that? Actually, yes, they are. That, he doesn't know that. That If he read to chapter 12, he'd find that out. Verse 3, this is the kicker. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I just wondered is there, if anybody's thinking about Tobiah. Where's Tobiah the Ammonite? He said a fox would destroy this, and we've got Scads of people walking on these walls, celebrating what God has done. We know what instruments they used, trumpets, cymbals, harps, lyres, choir singing, uh, the instruments of David from his day. We we don't know what they sang, though. We don't know what, the, the, the text doesn't tell us what the worshippers sang as they walked around the wall. It just says the choir sang. Scholars sort of say, well, likely they were singing the Psalms because that was the Old Testament songbook. Or, uh, you know, that, that's what they memorized and sang in worship. One, one scholar I read, or actually a couple, speculated, wonder if they sang as they walked around the city. Wonder if they sang Psalm 48. The scripture doesn't say they did, but I appreciate going with me with this uh, thought experiment for just a second psalm 48 verse 12 walk about zion go around her zion's the city of jerusalem walk about zion go around her number her towers consider well her ramparts go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is god our god forever and ever he will guide us forever I sort of like to think they were singing that. Wouldn't that be powerful? You're walking on the walls, and they have some familiar tune. All the psalms were sung. So they have some familiar tune as they're marching, processing, parading, whatever word you want to use. Uh, They're saying, go around her, go around the city number the towers. They're looking at, look at the towers. Here they are. This, they consider her ramparts, her citadels, that you may tell the next generation. So as they're singing and the children are, are watching, they are announcing to them, this is our God. This was rubble. These were burned stones. We were shamefully broken down as a city because of our sin for the last 150 years. But this is our God, the God who rebuilds the walls, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This This is the God who rebuilds the people and this is the God who's not just here today while we march and celebrate but will be with us forever so remember this the next generation pointing that out to them how powerful to consider that whatever they were singing we do know it had to do with the faithfulness of God because he is the one who had done this with great hope for tomorrow their celebration in the present is connected with God's faithfulness in the past Uh, Because they have not always been in this condition. Let's, Let's make a couple of applications about this passage and about the theme of joy. I want to talk about the fact that joy comes from recognizing God's faithfulness to us as a people. We could say to us as the church. Then I want to talk about joy comes from recognizing God's faithfulness to me, to you. As an, as an individual, first of all, joy comes their experience in this chapter was they had joy came, God made them joyful, joy came because they recognized god 's faithfulness to his people to us to us. Um, this joy they experienced was corporate that is, they were together it, it, it's it 's something. Uh, of a marvel to consider that the joy described here has to do with all of God's people are gathered in one place celebrating what he has done and they are experiencing a profound joy that is communal It, it is together and a shared joy is deeper than a private joy Shared joy is deeper than private joy. We are made as humans, created in the image of God. We are made for relationship. We are made for communion with other people, and you see this—you uh, see this in in our culture. You see the nature of humanity in this: that a, a shared joy is deeper and greater than a private joy. I'm uh, involved right now in helping to get ready for a birthday party for someone uh, that I love, and thinking about. A birthday party. Think about why do we gather for birthday parties? Why do we gather for any party? Because a shared joy is deeper than a private or an individual joy. A few weeks from now, a few weeks from now is Easter, and uh, maybe at Easter you're going to have maybe you do a family thing. You're going to have some people over. Why is it that we gather at holidays, Easter or Christmas or Thanksgiving? Why do we get together with friends and family? Because There's a shared joy that we experience together that we don't experience alone. If I'm just sitting at home thinking, wow, Jesus rose from the dead. That's really, really good news. And that's just an individual experience I have on that day. It is not the same kind of joy as gathering with his people and singing with robust joy and affection Christ the Lord is risen today and hearing his word proclaimed and then going home and like a new like a good new covenant family breaking out ham or some other now freely eaten type of meat this side of the resurrection Uh, and being able to celebrate with friends and family and that a shared joy is a deeper joy than a private joy. I made a sports analogy earlier. I, I was thinking the only reason that I can think of for attending live sp- uh, professional sporting event, if it's your kid's soccer game, of course, but the only reason I can think of attending live sports instead of televised sports is this reason. I mean, there's no, I would much rather watch a game in my living room where I can control the temperature, I can control uh, the uh, the screen, uh, I can control having no fans from the other team allowed in my house. Uh, I, can, <laughs> I, can, uh, I can just enjoy it on my terms. I can pay a quarter uh, for a serving of chips or nuts or whatever it is as opposed to paying $30 or whatever. I, everything about it is better except... When the team wins, when there is a last-second buzzer-beating shot that wins the game or when there's a walk-off homer or when a touchdown pass is thrown as the the time goes off the clock and everybody celebrates, it's that joy of cheering together, being caught up in the emotion of event communally with 50,000 strangers or whatever it is in the stadium or the arena and enjoying it except for that moment. Because me with a couple of other people in my family room bouncing up and down will never match the shared joy of experiencing that in community, even if I don't know the people. There's something about that. And so uh, the the, the idea that shared joy is deeper than private joy. This dedication, they are looking around and they are seeing the walls. That the enemy said will never be built. Their burned stones, even a fox could tear down your wall. And yet God was faithful and saw them through. And it's not just the walls, but as they look around, they see God's people. They're not in shame. They're not broken down. They're not scattered. They're not divided. They're united and they are praising their God with this parade on the walls and then the gathering in the temple together. They see the people and say, look what you've done for us. We know you. You are committed to us. And here we are celebrating you together. They had wondered if that would be the case. I mean God had promised Abraham I'm going to make a people from you. I'm going to give you a land and from you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That means a savior will come from your family. I'm going to do but it didn't look like wow, how's that going to happen? Everybody got carted off in exile, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed. How is God going to ever bless the nations through this people that are under his judgment? how's that ever going to happen? And then even when a previous king let them come back to the land to rebuild the temple, that was a slow project. And even once the temple got built, they're still not healthy. The walls are still torn down. Nobody lives in the city. The rich are oppressing the poor and taking advantage of them. It's not a good situation. God, are you ever, ever going to Fulfill your promises to us. And now, together they're saying, yes, look around. Listen. See. God has been faithful to us. He promises, and he has been faithful. When we think about God's faithfulness, we think about God's promises, and we think about time. Over time, God fulfills his promises for us. And to this group in Nehemiah 12, about 400 years after this, little more than 400 years after this. He's going to fulfill his promise by becoming a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who will come to give his life, to die on a cross to bear our sins, to be buried and raised from the dead so that anybody who believes in Jesus receives eternal life. We have our sins forgiven. We're given new life, new purpose. We're joined to Christ. We're joined to his people. And so now that promised Savior has come And the message of the gospel, that good news has spread for 2,000 years so that every Sunday when Christians gather to worship, when we gather here to worship God, it is a statement that you are faithful, God. You promised to Abraham, you built a people Israel, you promised that you would send a savior, you came yourself in Jesus Christ, and now Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, just the gathering here under your word, in your name to declare your news demonstrates that you're faithful. Every Sunday when we gather, we say God is faithful to his people. God is faithful corporately. We can look around and say, God promised that he would be in our midst That he would never leave us or forsake us Here we are and here he is Even under weak times Even when the church struggles And we do Even when we're not doing great Even when we're not having our greatest impact In a surrounding culture Even when our numbers of the church are meek And our efforts are feeble And even when we are uh, weakened By all kinds of situations God is still with us God is still faithful. And we, when we gather, this is why gathering together is so important, because it's just the reminder that, look, it's first of all, it's not all about me. The idea I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not into the church. I'm just into Jesus, but I'm not really into connecting with his people. The problem with that is Jesus is into connecting with his people. And if you're going to be with him and you're going to honor him, you're going to need to be with his people who are a mess, by the way, of course. So why don't you just bring your mess and we'll just be messier together. You know, God is faithful. He wants us together because when we're together, we have a corporate awareness that he's faithful to us, that he's with us, that he's active in us and through us. He wants us to know the shared joy when we gather, the shared joy of what Christ has done for us. It's a joy that they can't even imagine ultimately. there We have it so much better than they do. They're walking around walls and we're standing on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, the the savior of the world that they only anticipated. We're indwelt by his spirit. He's exalted and ruling over all. So as we gather, we want to ask God, give us the freedom. Give us the joy. Give us the rejoicing and the singing and the music that they are experienced because you have been faithful to us. Our testimony is no less. As a matter of fact, our testimony is greater because we have more evidence of God's faithfulness. We have an empty tomb to celebrate, which they didn't have at that point. Now, there's a time when the church comes together and grieves and laments and cries and weeps and there's burdens. That's in the Bible too. But we're not in that text today. We preach that text when we're in that text. But the text today is God is faithful and there's always something to thank him for. There's always something to be aware of. Joy comes from recognizing God's faithfulness to us, the church. And joy comes from recognizing God's faithfulness to me. I think the inverse of this is also true. Discouragement often comes when I lose an awareness of what God has done for me. And I'm only aware of how bad my circumstances are. I'm only aware of wanting something I don't have. I'm only aware that if I had that or if that worked out or that circumstance or that person, then, then I would have joy. Discouragement comes from that kind of perspective. Perspective. At this day of dedication, it was easy for the people to recognize the faithfulness of God. I mean, as they're walking on the walls, they're like, we're standing on the faithfulness of God. This was rubble. Months ago, this was rubble. And we are standing, walking, singing. We've got people in our city. We're in unity. It was not you. You could have zero spiritual discernment, very little biblical knowledge. And you could look around and go, wow, God's faithful. But I find in my day-to-day life, it's very easy for me to lose sight. When I'm not in that moment, for me to lose sight of the faithfulness of God. Just to lose sight. Just forget what all God has done. This last week, I, uh, I didn't have any like one, you know... Imminently tragic event, uh, but I just had one of those weeks where I feel like I was emotionally sort of down, discouraged, blue. There were some things that happened outside of my control, uh, which that statement right there is an indicator. But some things happened outside of my control that were discouraging to me, disheartening, and I found myself just down some this week, you know. And uh, so it was a great week to be studying this chapter. Uh, At one level, it was a great week, but at another level, I read this go, man, I don't feel like dancing on the walls right now, you know? So at one point, based on this chapter and the kindness of the Lord, I just began to think about God's faithfulness to me. And I just began to be very specific because faithfulness isn't generic. God is generically faithful. No, God is specifically faithful. And I just began to remember some stuff. Just take my eyes off the Situations and circumstances that were discouraging to me, and put my eyes on the Lord, and uh, I began to think. First of all, Lord, I'm—I know you, I, I love you. I'm messed up like you are. I, I have bad days, but you, here's the bottom line: since my since my young years as a kid, I've known you. And I'm still here. You're still with me. I still care. I want, in my heart of hearts, I want to honor you. That didn't originate from me. That came from you. If it wasn't you who gave me, I only love you because you first loved me. That's what the Bible says. And I wouldn't love you today if you hadn't first loved me. Lord, I'm here. I'm thinking about you. I'm carrying. I got my Bible open. You know, and it matters to me. That that is huge. That is huge. And let me just go down the list. Not only do I know you, but think, think about various people in my life I can give thanks for, starting with my wife and starting with my family and just articulating some specific gratitude there to the Lord. And think about the church I'm a part of, Lord. Uh, what a privilege it is to be a member of a church and to be a part, thank you for what you are doing. I had a, I just began to thank the Lord. I had a meeting this week with somebody. I had coffee with somebody who's not a Christian. And uh, I invited this person to our Easter service. This person's never been to an Easter service in their life. And the person said, yes, I'll come. I thought, Lord, that is something to give thanks for. Here's someone that has said, based on an invitation, they will come to hear about the resurrection. Lord, this is huge. Began to think about the the people I serve with, and and minister the team, the pastors, the guys I serve, the guys I serve with, and the unity and the joy that we experience together and just it just began to articulate so many different things and here's what I felt like I felt like you know what as I articulate in my mind God's specific faithfulness I mean I went other categories as well but as I began to see those things it was like the wall was being built and all of a sudden I went from a rubble heap chapter one burned stones to I feel like I'm walking on a wall I feel like I am I'm walking on the faithfulness of God in my life because I see the faithfulness of God in my life. I don't mean to oversimplify. I'm not saying that if you go home and make a praise God list that instantly all your problems, I'm not oversimplifying that. There are times when we are in a depression, that we are way down, that... You know, that, that it's that way for a while. So I'm not, I'm not trying to oversimplify this. But I am saying, if there's any genuine joy to be had, not circumstantial happiness, not a momentary thrill. But if there's genuine abiding joy to be found, it's to be found connected to God and specifically his faithfulness in our lives. So what are the walls of God's faithfulness in your life? What has God built so far in your life that you can stand on and go, this God has done for me, and I refuse to ignore what he's done. I'm going to remember what God has done, and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to speak what God has done and thank him and sing, and I may get out a trumpet or whatever, but I'm going to celebrate what God has done. Listen, some of us in the room are in a really bad way. Maybe we're really discouraged. And if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you with something very basic, but I hope you'll take it to heart. You are here today, and there's something to be encouraged about that. I mean, you may say, everything in my life is going on bad. I don't sense God. He seems far from me. I feel isolated and lonely. It's been a while since I sensed the joy of the Lord. And, I, man, I almost didn't even come. But you're here and you 're here on daylight saving Sunday, which is amazing if you should have if you could have been in the first service <laughs> uh, it was the pastors and two other people i think but and we had to be here. I had to preach I thought about not coming, but uh, no there there was a faithful remnant that were there but uh, <laughs> but Seriously, you are here. You have some interest. I mean, maybe somebody got you in a headlock and brought you, but you have some interest to be here. You have some flickering hope for God. God has not snuffed out your wick, as the Bible says. It may seem like a very small flame, but it is burning, and God can fan that into flame. You are here. You're hearing that God is faithful. You're hearing God's word. You're surrounded by people that care or would take it, if you let them know what's going on, would care to come around you and help. That's something. That's something. Sometimes all you can do is get up and make it, but that is is a sign that God has not left you, that he is faithful. Here's what I found in some discouragement this week which didn't instantly forever go away, but I began to think, oh yeah, situations that looked hopeless, now I'm starting to see some possibilities. I'm praying, I'm thinking. When I started recounting what God's done in the past, I, I got hope for the future. This is a biblical reality. This is also a, a, a natural observation, I would say by common grace, in the study of positive psychology, where this is, this is an, an observable idea that when we are experiencing, we're caught in the grip of perhaps some type of a negative emotion, maybe it's regret for the past or bitterness or anxiety for the future, that the way the mind thinks is there's oftentimes a limiting of options and ideas moving forward. Whereas when the opposite is true, when we are influenced largely by a positive emotion like gratitude or uh, some, some type of hope, that there is a creativity and that the mind thinks creatively and sees options moving forward. That's just a natural observation of how we are created, but I would say that there's a spiritual reality of that too. That when we have a gratitude for what God has done in the past, as we look at the future, there is a hope that comes to us spiritually—a hope. There is an a, a, we, there is some possibility that we see. There is some creativity. There is some. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. I could. There. There is some kind of desire to move forward in hope with 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 pathways. That you hadn't seen before, and I saw pathways that I hadn't seen before in some discouraging circumstances. This is how God works when we see His faithfulness, and it's even borne out in human existence. We're created in His image; even those who don't know Him can experience some kind of uh, some kind of uh, of options in their thoughts. When God, when we're filled with gratitude, that sort of thing. God designed us this way. So what are the walls of faithfulness you can walk on? You can march on, you can sing on this week. How can you cultivate those? The last section, which I really didn't teach, but it's, it's just about cultivating that. After this big celebration, they say, make sure everybody's giving their tithes and first fruits because we want to have the priests and the Levites there because we want them to lead uh, the people of God in worship like used to happen back in David's day. We read that. So let's, let's plan for continued joy and worship. Let's plan for that. And so that's what they do. So how can I cultivate this moving forward? The last idea here is just how joy points others to him. You know, I love the verse. One of my favorite verses in the whole section is verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I love that. I love that. The world needed to hear the people of God celebrating the goodness of God. What we're quick to do is condemn and judge and tell the world how bad they are and our self-righteousness. And you know how many people are drawn to our scolding? Uh, roughly zero. Man, we got a reputation of just scolding people, just, ju- just judging all those people out there. Sometimes it's an unfair reputation, but sometimes it's a fair reputation. The world needs to hear the glory of Christ by seeing a unified church celebrating his character, announcing his goodness, saying, how could you not be drawn to this loving God by just displaying his wonder like faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness to his people, the way he cares for us, what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection. When we focus on the goodness of God, people are attracted and want to know that God. We speak of his holiness as well. And in his holiness, he has saved us by his love in Christ. So they celebrate, and it's heard far away. And what the people heard was a good thing. It was a rumbling sound of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. Now, again, I mentioned earlier, there's a time to grieve. I'm going to be clear on that. There's a time for corporate grief. There's a time for individual grief. There's a time for lament corporately and individually. But this passage, I want to say that to not be misunderstood in case this is the only Sunday you ever come here and you think, oh, that, that church is just imbalanced. They just talk about happiness or something like that. There is plenty of the Bible talks about other seasons of life, but this passage, we need to interpret this passage and let it stand on its own. And no matter what season we are in, there is never a time, never a time, when we should ignore what God has done in his faithfulness for us. It's never so dark that we should ignore and refuse to consider what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And if all I can say on Sunday is, I'm here and I made it, that's something enough to start with praise towards God who's been faithful to us in Jesus. His death, his resurrection, that message, that faithfulness ultimately produces joy because we recognize what God has done for us that we never could have done ourselves out of his love and his care, his mercy, and his personal kindness to us individually and to us as a people. Joy comes from recognizing the faithfulness of God to us and to me as part of us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at org.